Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Greetings, greetings, greetings. Welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio, and as, as you heard, I am your host, Rob Watson. Um, we have a really incredible show for you today. I, I always promise that, and just full disclosure, we are um, kind of on the radar with a lot of artistic people around the globe. Um, last week, we did a film from Canada that was um, hot in the uh, film uh, festival circuit, um, and we, we you know, Disney Plus, HBO um, uh, Plus, uh, you know, all those folks are have, have people on our, our docket. We never know exactly who we're going to get the next week, and, um, and obviously we have ties with all the major political organizations across the country as well. Um, so that is why I stay happily in the dark as to what our next conversation is going to be about. And I can always promise you that the next one is going to be wonderful. Well, this week is absolutely no exception. Um, I'm so excited to talk to our guest. Uh, To me, he is completely iconic in the LGBTQ um, experience. He has ridden the arc of um, the history of our movement from being um, visible and out in the um, kind of the free love part of uh, coming out in the the 70s, um, the 80s, um, being uh, a probably the first out actor um, that that uh, hit hit the radar um, in the 80s. Um, he appeared on the sitcom Cheers, among other things. Um, he was very visible in the HIV/AIDS crisis and fighting um, during that period. Then uh, later he became a gay dad, which uh, he's been quoted as saying that that was actually the pinnacle of of his um, best work. Um, And today we are going to talk to him about his latest iteration of um, the world premiere of a production called The Ache for Home, which is a docudrama that uh, illuminates the homeless voices in West Hollywood. Um, and I'm talking, of course, about the iconic Michael Kearns, who is waiting on deck to talk to us today. Um, and um, like I said, very excited to to speak to him and um, uh, talk about his life and, and what has brought him to us at this point today. Um, before I bring Michael on, I do want to introduce my illustrious co-host, the editor-in-chief of the L.A. Blade magazine, um, who just put this week's issue to bed. So um, uh, if, he, if he's tired, that's why, although he always bellies up the energy um, regardless. But uh, in any case, I want to welcome Brody Levesque to the show. Brody, welcome. How are you doing? Okay. Good afternoon, Rob. Greetings to all of our subscribers and our listeners around the globe. We appreciate all of you so much. Thank you for subscribing. Tell your friends about it. You can find us on iHeartRadio and other platforms, Rated LGBT Radio. We really, really, really appreciate it. Uh, a couple things that I wanted to cover today before we start with our guest. 
Um, first and foremost, uh, the uh, looks like the uh, television and motion picture industry is going to have a little bit of a work stoppage. Um, on Wednesday, the president of the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees Union, known better as IATSE, uh, announced that his membership will strike on Monday at 12.01 a.m. Pacific, unless the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers in the Studios come to some sort of agreement. Matthew D. Loeb, who is the head of IATSE, uh, indicated in a tweet yesterday that he was announcing that unless, or not Wednesday, on Thursday, Tuesday rather, uh, today's Thursday, uh, I'm announcing that unless an agreement is reached, 60,000. I ask the film and TV workers will begin a nationwide strike. Uh, the thing that's important about this is it will shut down film production uh, in all the major film uh, production areas of New York, Orlando, Florida, Atlanta, Georgia, Los Angeles itself, uh, Portland, Oregon, and Seattle. So this is going to essentially just shutter everything. Um, and for the LGBT Cody, what yeah, is- yeah, what is the agreement about that they're well, the problem, to shut the, everything the, down the, around? The problem is that, um, you know, there's uh, the union members are being asked uh, or say they're being asked, and in most cases they are, they're being forced to work excessive hours. Uh, they're not giving reasonable rest periods in between, you know, meal breaks or time off between shifts. Um, and then, of course, the worst part of it is that you know, for the below the line, which is all what all of these crafts are, you know, they're being paid, you know, just completely unlivable wages. And then you've got um, the streamers, Netflix, Apple, Amazon, Hulu. They're allowed to pay even less under previous agreements. Uh, and that's kind of like not even good. Uh, I spoke with Rebecca Ryan. Rebecca is the national executive director uh, the Cinematographers uh, Guild, which is IFU Local 600. This is what she told me. She said, we've continued to try and impress upon the employers the importance of our priorities, the fact that this is about human beings, and the working conditions are about dignity and health and safety at work. The health and safety issues, the unsafe hours, the not breaking for meals, you know, these were exceptions. These were, you know, for many years, it's a tough industry, but now that's only they become the norm. So they're no longer an exception, now they're the norm. Um, Rank-and-file membership that I've spoken to are genuinely upset that the studios and the producers, you know, are are just not moving on their positions and are not listening. Um, uh, You know, one person told me, and rightly so, that the strike will cripple the economy here uh, in California especially. Um, Ryan told me and the Associated Press both that, you know, a strike is always difficult for everyone. Everybody suffers. It's hard. Uh, but she said to me, she said, I believe that our members have the will and resolve to do what's necessary to be heard and have their voices translated into actual change in the industry. And then she added, what we've learned from the pandemic is that employers can change the way they do business if it is in their interest to do so. And in the case, uh, you know, for the below-the-line folks with IASTI, you know, that very much is true. Uh, I personally have several dear friends who are members of the union. I have others who work under the agreement uh, because they work for one of the streaming services. Uh, and quite frankly, you know, it's time that these 
producers and, and any studios stood up and did the right thing by the union rank and file. For the LGBTQ community, it's a particular import. It's estimated, and these are numbers that I got from a source in the union, that if you take the IAC membership as a whole, approaching 50% are LGBTQ plus individuals. So roughly half of the union membership. So this is this is going to affect our community pretty pretty hard too. So we uh, we're going to wait and see. Uh, the negotiations uh, are happening now; they're ongoing, and we're waiting to see uh, if the alliance uh, of film producers and the studios are going to step up and do the right thing, or if Midnight Monday, yeah, TV and film production shuts down until uh, the folks say, okay, yeah, you know, we're right. We need to take care of that. Um, oh, on that note, I want to give a special shout out, uh, because this is kind of a cool thing and for me, it's really neat. Uh, I want to reach a uh, shout out, uh, to Julie, uh, Kelsey. Uh, she is a writer and a director with common language films in Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. Um, and if she's listening to the show, uh, Julie, massive congratulations from me. Uh, Julie and her crew won the 10th uh, International Emmy Kids Award in the category of uh, live action uh, for their show, uh, First Day. And uh, it's really cool. First Day uh, has a trans actor, uh, Evie McDonald. She's the first ever uh, to star in a lead role of an Australian scripted television drama. And uh, she was 11 when uh, she got started. First Day covers many of the issues faced daily by trans kids in schools. It's been crucial in representing trans youth experiences on screen in Australia and globally. So, uh, Joy, hats off to you and your crew. Folks, if you want to watch this great show, and I highly recommend it, the series is available on Hulu in the U.S., on ABC Me in Australia, and on the Canadian Broadcasting Gem Network in Canada. So if you get a chance, go see this show. You're going to love it. Now, switching to something that you and I have spoken about over the last few days okay. and it's annoyed everybody, Dave Chappelle. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, Chappelle, uh, you know, is a comedian. He has a really sweet deal with Netflix and his latest uh, comedy special on Netflix was offensive. It was offensive to the trans community. It was offensive to trans allies. Yeah, it was basically offensive all the way across the board. Uh, Chappelle obviously has a bunch of people defending him. Uh, you know, our friend of the show and my good friend, uh, uh, Brent Tannehill with a column for the Los Angeles Blade, um, which was published yesterday, and she talks about the fact that Chappelle probably isn't going to get canceled for his transphobia. And then, of course, to make matters worse, Netflix's CEO has doubled down on it. He is supporting Chappelle. And now um, many of the trans and non-binary staff of Netflix have announced that next week they're going to do a walkout. But the problem with Chappelle and and the problem with this kind of humor and construct is that it needs to end. It's not funny. 
it's not humorous, and it's not a joke. Trans representation does not need to be the punchline. It, it is right. especially sensitive, you know, for young trans kids of color in particular, you know, are black and Latino and Asian. It is sensitive uh, just for transgender people across the board. I mean, right now, you were once again fighting in Texas because that clueless legislature, okay, has pushed that anti-trans youth sports bill, HB 25, to the floor of the House for a vote. And, of course, as you know, we are battling transgender health care issues all over the place. We've got more cases in federal courts right now uh, over transphobic pieces of legislation uh, against trans health care, against trans participation in sports. Basically, as Bryn says, and I don't necessarily disagree with this, you know, the Christian right and the Republicans are trying to legislate trans people out of existence. And that's essentially, you know, the appearance that it has. And then when you get someone right. like Chappelle, you know, and Chappelle's got a huge, massive audience, and he gets on there, and he says all this cool as garbage. All right. And then the head of Netflix says, oh, that, that's okay. You know, we'll, we'll stand by him. Now, the only reason Netflix is doing it is because Chappelle's been a cash cow for them. And I take exception to that. So to Netflix, my basic attitude is screw you. And I'm going to join the ranks of those that, you know, are going to say, no, it's not cool. Chappelle's jokes are not funny when it comes down to trans people. And this situation is ludicrous. He needs to man up and he needs to apologize. And Netflix needs to remove the damn special, period. Anyway, so that's my two cents, Rob. Yeah, no, I I hear you and I understand where you're coming from. Um, I think we also have to look at the core of where Dave Chappelle is coming from, from the the black experience and the anger that is behind the humor um, on that. And I'm not justifying, you know, his, his choice of lashing out. I'm definitely not justifying his turf um, warm and fuzzies that he put forth in that special. Um, but it's um, – and I, I think the voices that have touched me the most in this are the um, the black trans activists and the black um, LGBTQ activists who have spoken out, who are intersectionalized, and um, you know are are the most at at um, at risk from his rhetoric. Um, I think he's in his mind, trans people are all Caitlyn Jenner and. Um, that is kind of what his target is, um, but that's not the case. And um, I kind of would like to see a better open discussion and him coming to the table and talking about this rather than it being, you know, extreme, you know, right or left and um, cancel culture, et cetera. So, but anyway, good, good thoughts, Brody. Thanks for, thanks for the report um, on that. <laughs> So, shifting gears, um, we're going to be talking to a man who has has um, witnessed it all, um, and uh, from the LGBTQ arc of history, um, and I'm really thrilled to welcome to the show, Michael, welcome to the show today. Hi, how are you? Please I'm great, how are you doing? Dave Chappelle. <laughs> 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 oh my god. 
I now it's really hard uh, not to ask you about that. That's like, don't think about pink elephants. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. I'll, I'll answer anything you want. <laughs> <laughs> or I'll try. Okay, well, we've got so much with you. Let's, let's, yeah. we, we may come back to Dave at the end of the show. Should, okay. should we have I'm nothing else to talk about? <laughs> I'm glad it's generating passion. That's all I'll say. And, uh, you know, that people are illuminating some of the issues around, especially black trans women who are, you know, victimized at an alarming rate and, uh, well, murdered might be the better word. And so right. I'm glad that it's shedding light on that. Yeah. I'll say no, that. I, and that, <laughs> that, that I totally agree with you. I think that, and that's what I would love to see out of this is that we elevate that conversation and um, have more people aware of that because that is tragic and that is part of the the culture of um, people of color and trans people of color is the the attitudes within their own communities are so violent towards them. Um, yeah. You know, and and that's the the wave that we need to turn around. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, I have to tell you. Um, you are one of my big heroes, and I am, like, trying not to go all fanboy all over you just because <laughs> I, I have I've been so aware of you for decades, and it's like you have been, like, this ever-present um, person in our history. And, and I mean, and I, I go back to the point where I think it was kind of a PR thing where you were hired to represent the Happy Hustler um, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, so, so I, you know, you had me back at the Happy Hustler. Let, let me put it that way. Okay, well, well, good. That was my introduction to a lot of people, and for which I am, you know, it had its ups and downs, but I'm grateful that I uh, captured something, the zeitgeist of the times, I guess, really, right? Yeah, you know, 70s. you were, yeah, you, you took on the face of it, and you, I mean, and, you know, and, and I'm not going to lie that I have not seen um, your your porn offering of the time, which I loved. Uh-huh. Um, Good. You know, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's like the uh, when the LA Weekly said that your work is was quote collisions of sex and death of eroticism and grief. Um, I totally understand what they're talking about because you you were public before we had any grief. I mean, you kind of represented yeah. that erotic free time that we lived through. Um, no, I love that you is, use the expression free love because to me that kind of encapsulates it better than a lot of the expressions that have been used to describe <laughs> my uh, period of time. But no, that's really what it was. I was just, you know, maybe an exaggerated exemplification of what was going on. But that's what I was really was a representative of what was happening everywhere in the gay community, in the male gay community, let us say. Right. So it was, uh, that was the fun part and the joy. You know, we forget that there was that whole period where sexuality was joyful and exciting and thrilling and didn't have death attached to it. So um, I'm lucky to have lived then to have been sort of, uh, you know, uh, a representative of that. 
and that's all good. Yeah, no, it, absolutely, and I love that about you because it, it's like I related to it at the time. You know, I came out of the closet, I was very repressed, and all of a sudden it came into this world, and it was just right before the horror of AIDS was about to make its presence known. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, you represented this, this freedom of, of humanity to me. I mean, you know, in obviously a very erotic way. And to the point that, and I don't know if many people bring this up to you is because you've done so much and your, your collective resume is, is huge, but one of the ones that stood out to me the most was this small part that you had on the television show Cheers. And, you know, it, it was a great episode, and you, you had a presence there. And when I saw you on there, it was like, yes. You know, this yeah, is it, awesome. well, it was, you know, the casting director was uh, Stephen Kolzak, who was eventually a Paul Manette's lover. Uh, people don't know all this, of course. And Steve Kolzak, um, you know, deliberately cast me in that role to make a statement. He didn't know it would be a statement that's being talked about 30 years later, but he <laughs> knew what he was doing. In other words, he cast this, you know, person who people knew in this straight, confused, for gay person on the show. Yeah, that show won an Emmy. It was, uh, you know, it was really a good show. And I was really so happy because he was one of the only people in Hollywood. I mean, one of the only who uh, had the foresight and the um, whatever, the guts to uh, make that an issue in a way that I was going to be cast in that episode. Of course, Jim Burroughs, the director, had to approve it and everything, but yet it was Steve's idea to cast me in that part. So it was great. It was great. It was a thrill. And when my daughter was about seven or eight, I think we were on the plane and they showed it and she jumped up and she's not like her, although she's uh, pretty, uh, she's pretty, uh, it has a pretty exciting Hollywood life now, but she jumped up and turned to the whole plane and said, that's my dad. <laughs> Cause it was being shown on the, yeah. So cute. So sweet that that happened. But yeah, yeah, it's on all the time. It's funny. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and, and that's awesome. And, and, you know, I didn't think about it in the depth that you just explained it, but it did have that effect because at the time, for those of us who were out in, quote, unquote, the community and, and, and usually hiding at, at that point in history, when any television show, which was rare, was even going to address anything having to do with gay issues or trans issues or whatever, you know, we were watching it like a hawk because it was always something where they were talking about us. You know, it's like they were mm-hmm. presenting something about us. And, you know, it was sort of like eavesdropping in as what they were saying or how they were presenting us. And when you walked in, in the part that you did, it was sort of, it, it, it reaffirmed it. It made it like, wow, one of us is there. You know, is right. watching what they're doing. You know, so it yes. really, you know, I, I really did think it had a huge impact. That's very smart of you. Yes. I'm not, I don't think everybody well, got that consciously, 
but they got it subconsciously. Even even the person in uh, you know uh, Minnesota <laughs> sitting around the TV probably got something like that from what you're saying. Yeah, well, it's you know it's like the like the film uh, Celluloid Closet. You know, one of the things they brought up in that was how back in the day before you know anybody was very out, where there were hints in films and and mm. you know subtexts and things like that. How people got on the phone going, "Did you see that? What did that mean?" You know, it's like secret. Right, life. right. Who, who is who's Doris Day singing to? You know. Yeah, this was sort of the next step after that and if you can that that didn't happen until the 70s i mean that's what's amazing about it right or maybe that was the eight right yeah, it might have been the early 80s but still it was it was not that long ago that that it started seeping into the culture where it had not been in the 50s and the 60s and you know it was still that secreted kind of uh message going on that you refer to which is so uh amazing when you look at some of the movies that exist that did have some subtext percolating under the plot if you look for it you know great yeah no absolutely and and that's kind of what i wanted to ask you about oh oh, sure brody (laughs) brody gets that question (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, it's the journalist in me. I mean, some of the earliest representations in television, because of censorship and because of, you know, the way the community was thought of, um, at first was handled in a stereotypical way, and there was kind of a shallowness to the characters. Uh, that changed, of course, uh, in the mid-1970s and early 80s with the TV show Barney Miller, which had its first reoccurring gay characters. Then there was you, of course, famously Billy Crystal's uh, character on Soap. But it became a thing, I think, that we started to see a sense of normality and humanity with it. Um, Did you see that at that time as you were going your way forward, or did you still see it as they were kind of doing a toss-away stereotype? There were a lot of stereotypes. And to be honest, you know, I mean, here was the deal. I was you know, pegged, cast in those, some of those roles. And some of the roles I played were stereotypes, but rather have a real gay man play those roles than a straight man who would constantly be spoofing it. I didn't spoof it. If I was going to play a gay character, no matter how extreme, no matter how whatever words you want to use, it was authentic. In other words, I was doing it in an authentic way. Whereas if you had someone, you know, I'm not going to name names, but playing it, they are always winking. They're always nudging the camera and saying, I'm not really that way. So the performances are by and large horrible, including Academy Award winning performances, because the actor is constantly reminding you that that's not who he is. You know, they're constantly, yeah. if they're not saying that on the talk shows, they're saying it in the performance. They don't have to say it on the talk shows because you see them separating themselves from the character in some way. So, yes, I experienced that a lot. And then I sort of experienced the changeover of that where the characters were less, you know, flamboyant. Let's use that word. That's a safe word. Uh, yeah, flamboyant. true. And more, you know, 
more mainstream, if you will. But then, of course, as what happened in the entire community, in our, our culture was AIDS. And then I went from playing those characters to playing characters with AIDS, you know, I, which was took its toll and I stopped doing it because I, I was, you know, sitting in makeup chairs being made up to look like what I would presumably look like at some point. Of course, now I'm 71 years mm-hmm. old and I've never had that experience, thanks to the Lord. But, you know, there was then another stereotype entered the scene in the 90s, you know, on TV. There was the constantly they had to have a person with AIDS on the show. And they didn't right, have a person with right. AIDS who looked normal like I did when I went to the set. They had a person who had AIDS who looked ghastly. The more ghastly they could make that person look. And finally, I was like, oh, come on. You know, I did like some several episodes of Beverly Hills 90210, whatever the numbers are. And I thought, <laughs> enough, you know, enough. I just can't do this anymore playing. So, um, you know, being stereotyped again in my career, now as somebody who has HIV and AIDS, or AIDS, whatever the words are. Yeah, so it's interesting, huh? But again, my life, my personal life, was sort of mirroring the, the zeitgeist of the gay community. You know, I mean, well, how, yeah, how we, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're you're, so. you're you're one of it. You're authentically one. I mean, you you, <laughs> you live the life. Yeah, it's like it wasn't it wasn't a script for you. It was it was your life. It was our life. Yes. Um, but then I immersed it, myself in the theater, so more, more and more and more and more and more. Yeah. Right, right. Which I, I, I come from theater, so I get that, and I, I love that about because theater is, you get to, you get to act, but you, every, every performance is experiencing it. It's, it's very, you know, more solidly in the craft than you know, 10 minutes in front of a camera and then you go off and Absolutely. And, you know, thank God I I was able to catapult that career all over the world. You know, I mean, I didn't know that when I started. I certainly didn't know writing a piece in 1989, keep in mind, about characters with AIDS that were pretty controversial characters, not necessarily lovable or cuddly would take me all over the world. I didn't had no idea that that would happen. I mean, I, I hoped it would be a success, but no idea. So then I was sort of right. entrenched in that world and I lived in it, you know, probably until I adopted for my child. Uh, I was pretty active for all those years, uh, uh, traveling and touring, doing solo work that was essentially all, geared to uh, illumination of the HIV-AIDS dilemma, conundrum, problem, challenge. Which, which that, by the way, is, is part, of, part of the thing I love about your history is, is not just that you represented and you fought for and your HIV-AIDS activism, but that you also then transitioned into the next phase of our history, which is the presentation of gay men not as sexual beings, not as, you know, disease victims, but as parents and family people and creating family, which was kind of the, the next 
phase. And just so, to let you know, I did the same thing, although oh, wow. I was probably a number of years after you where I adopted two um, baby boys in 2002. Um, wow. So I, I followed the arc. But, um, how are talk they? Talk about how you became. They're great. They're, they're uh, <laughs> both wonderful young men. I love them to death. They're my favorite people on the planet. Um, oh. um, and... Yeah, it's, it's they're, are they they're siblings? Terrific. Are they blood? Are they siblings or they're not? They they were okay. four months apart, you know, birth uh, birth wise, and they're complete opposite. One is uh, five foot something and uh, Latino, dark hair, beautiful black hair, um, brown eyed. The other one is six one, blonde, blue eyed German. So it's like my God, but they. They grew up as twins, so their their bond is is really twin tight. But um, wow. yeah, they're um, they're they're and, and I wrote columns for um, LGBTQ Nation and Huffington Post for years about uh, being a gay dad and fought for the you know marriage equality and and talked about my family in conjunction with that. But uh, oh, tell us your great. gay dad, your venture in being a gay dad. How did you, how did you break into that? How did what what uh, drove you to it? Okay, well I uh, I had done a lot of work as I said, and then I had a lover that uh, we traveled a lot together and uh, built a world, and he died in ninety two. I'm terrible with years and stuff, but I think it was ninety two. And um, at that point, you know, I I really accomplished a lot of what I wanted to accomplish in life. And I just kept saying to myself, what's next? What am I going to do? What haven't I done? What do I need to do? And I just kept coming back to being a dad. And that had been a desire since I was a teenager. So it wasn't brand new, but it had been put on hold for a lot of reasons, including HIV uh, AIDS, because I had been uh, tested, but I was positive at that point, and there were no protease inhibitors, keep in mind. That was the big controversy with me, right. And but I decided at that point that's what I was going to do, and so I set about to try to do it in ways that weren't full-time, you know, to be a weekend dad, to be a foster dad, to do this, to do that, but I kept coming back to, no, 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 no. No matter what, no matter how audacious it is, no matter how risky it is, no matter what, I'm going to adopt a child that I have full time. And I don't care if it, what color the child is. I don't care what illnesses the child has. I don't, none of that matters. All that matters is that I want to have a child from day to day, 24 7. So without going into all the stories, because they're Kafka-esque, uh, including, you know, a gay man turning, a, a gay man trying to thwart it, somebody I don't even know calling the adoption agency, things like that. You know, also the gay Oh, my crowd, God. Uh, oh, yeah. Excoriate me. Is that the word? Something like that. Uh, yeah. uh, it's saying I was crazy and selfish and those those words might apply to some degree i mean you do have to be crazy to want to raise a child <laughs> because it's difficult <laughs> you know selfish i don't think so but crazy yes so anyway 
I, I, I did it, and I did it as a single man, and with with a lot of help, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of help that I enlisted early on. In fact, before she was uh, ever in the picture, I got, I went to people, friends, close people, old, young, straight, black, white, and said, um, "Will you help me with this venture? Will you be an extended family?" And because I was HIV positive and didn't know my future and all those things, I wasn't in inconsiderate of these issues so uh but the 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 truth is and the whatever for whatever reason it's a success story and she's uh you know nothing's perfect when you have a family (laughs) did Catherine Hepburn say that or somebody you know (laughs) what did she say in the line in winter something like that something about the ups and downs of a family anyway that's true of any family (laughs) Right? I mean, if you're a family, you're going to have some hurdles along the way or there'd oh, be something absolutely. wrong. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but she is, uh, you know, she's a very successful television writer. She's only 27. And she's just done, she's an incredible human being. I don't know. I think a lot of that has anything to do with me, but maybe a little of it does. So it's... Um, it's been quite an adventure. And then, you know, I've continued to work and the older she got and as she became, as she blossomed and, and took on her own uh, life, as it were, uh, I was able to work a little bit more, or a little bit, I don't know what, but things, things morph. <laughs> yeah, no. And I relate to so much of what you said every step of the way. I was, I was literally probably a decade behind you on the same path um, that, that you were. And I really want to thank you for blazing a trail because I know that probably yeah. wasn't your intention as, as you did that. But, you know, it's like I, every, every time period we all go through, you know, there are still issues. They're less than the ones that people had to go through right before us. And I hear that in your story of like, nobody called the adoption agency to tell them, how I was crazy, although I relate to you, probably was, um, mm-hmm. you know, but it, it, but there were still attitudes and there were still things that we had to deal with in, in being as new as we were on the scene of yes. gay people adopting kids. So yeah, oh, I it, think probably it, it totally is, is there. You know, even um, today, I wanted, I wanted, yeah, yeah no, I mean, if, if some of those politicians had their way, we wouldn't be adopting kids today. Yeah, you know, exactly. I, and there, and 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 what Brody brought up in his new segment about how those politicians are going after um, trans kids today. You know, yes. that's their their new hot button target. But before yeah. before we, uh, you know, obviously I could talk to you for hours about all of these themes. I don't want to lose sight of, of the, the, the one that you're working on today, though, and oh, the sure. production of the, the Ache for Home. Um, tell us about that, and um, tell us about QueerWise, the organization that you, you were behind that is putting this on. Okay, great, great, great. Well, you know, it's so interesting that you say the Ache for Home, how it applies to what we've been talking about in terms of children, family, um, returning home, you know, we can't go home again. Yes, we can. Uh, no place like home. I mean, it's all these things that are tied up in 
in uh, universal emotion about some kind of solidity, some kind of um, contact that's not what we most of us had as children, at least I didn't. And I think that we have a chance to redefine home. And that's what this piece is about. Queerwise has been around now for 10 years, and it's a, a, it's had some uh, evolution during those 10 years. But it's a writing group, essentially a writing collective, that began doing spoken word performances uh, shortly after it was formed, the group, and has a good reputation for going out and performing in these various venues, uh, the center and uh, beyond Baroque, places that are LGBTQ identified and other places that aren't, and spreading the word. So we decided, I decided, someone decided, I think, to um, go into the community more Specifically, we got a grant from the city of West Hollywood, and I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to look at uh, people experiencing homelessness in West Hollywood, a place that you would not typify necessarily as uh, uh, inhabited by a lot of homeless folks. And it is, of course, as you know. And uh, right. so we set about to mentor the members of Queerwise who are all writers do, went set out to find, to identify X number of people who wanted to tell their stories. And they met with the mentors and they were um, encouraged and, you know, we weren't teaching ABCD and where to put the period and comma. We were teaching them how to get their feelings onto the page, their emotional life onto the page which is so empowering and so uh, constructive, I think, for anyone, especially anyone who's in any kind of, uh, you know, emotional um, flux or, or, or problematic emotions, which obviously living on the street can bring about. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. And now that is uh, all being put together, literally. <laughs> I'm seeing footage today. So it's up to the minute. It will be aired on Sunday on the QueerWise YouTube channel. I hope I'm getting all this right. And it's really <laughs> exciting stuff. Uh, back to the trans issue, we have, we happen to have in this very small group of, like, I think seven or eight of the people uh, who have gone through the process of the mentor-mentee writing, we have three black trans men. And uh, this just happened, you know. We didn't go out and say, "You, we want this and we want that." And we want. We got the people who were interested in coming into the project, and we happen to have three black men. Well, guess why? Because they're underrepresented. Nobody talks right. about them. Nobody forget homelessness. They don't talk about that community. Period. They're invisible. Um, it's it's just as you can tell. I'm very impassioned about um, having people be able to be themselves. And so, uh, absolutely, yeah. What yeah. time on um, Sunday will that appear online? Do you know? It's five o'clock. Five p.m. Yeah. Great. Okay. Yeah. And um, and and it is on the Queerwise um, YouTube channel. So if you do a search for yeah. Queerwise on YouTube. You should, you there should you find, it. find Excellent. it. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm and it so will excited. be repeated. 
Oh, It'll great. Okay. So it's, you know, for months to come. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Um, can you give us a little preview of what, what, what are some of the stories that are told there that have impacted you that, that moved you specifically? Well, you know, it's so interesting because what we don't do and what I was just talking to, you know, there's, I'm the producer of the event and the entire, you know, the, what it took to get to this point of, of it being a, a video. Uh, what we don't want it to be is 60 minutes. Not, I'm not saying anything against 60 minutes, but what we didn't want it to be was, you know, I had the operation and I had to go get the money. And not that everybody in the show is trans, but many of them are. I'm just making a statement that, you know, we've heard a certain prototype of uh, interview where, you know, you get those facts and then you get some Mormon cuddly. We let them tell their stories and write their stories um, with prompts, of course. But so, you know, I'm just thinking of one uh, young man that uh, talks about the various places in his house that was a prompt that might trigger feelings. And he talked about the safety of uh, being in his bedroom and being able to dance and, and, and be himself there. But when he came out of that bedroom, even like in the hallway or on the way to uh, a common area, like the kitchen, things started changing inside him, you know? So I talk, I have them talk and they talk about, uh, home what it was like when they were young you know what was the physical space like and what emotions did that physical space bring up today and so there's very impactful language that they come up and you know they're poets i mean they're they're poets mm-hmm. and they're uh, they're natural born storytellers that's what they do out there on the street a lot you know they tell their stories because they have to they have to tell their stories, and I don't want to. I hate that they because it sounds like it's they and me and they and them. And, but mm-hmm. they tell their stories in order to survive. You know, otherwise, what do we have if we don't have our stories? <laughs> no, it's um, it's fascinating. It's moving, um, and I love the quote that uh, came from Maya Angelou that um, the the show's title references, which in the quote is. The ache for home lives in all of us, the safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. Um, Isn't it incredible? Yeah, that's so profound and and deep and and wonderful. Um, And, you know, the homeless population is all around us in in very, in in huge uh, variety. I mean, there's a diverse reason why a lot of people are homeless. uh, what what have you learned by being involved with people who are um, in that situation? Yeah, well, so much. And, you know, I, 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 this isn't my first uh, rodeo, as they say. I, I've been involved in that community artistically and otherwise, but uh, for about 20 years now. So I've, I've done this writing and uh, expression, self-expression and, with various communities, including women, downtown women's center, et cetera. And I just continue to learn that we can't simply look at a, a, you know, a street or a filled with tents and, and judge those people and say that they're 
there because they're shiftless and lazy and drug addicts and because that's simply not the case. It never has been the case, but it's more right. and more that we learn about, you know, people being removed from their homes because they can't pay the rent and they're going to work from that tent. You know, they leave that tent and find a bathroom somewhere to clean up to go to a job. I mean, these are the realities. There, there are a lot of people, yes, who are drugs on drugs and have mental health issues. However, there's also people who, there are also people who are struggling, who have families, who have children, who, you know, it's a wide uh, swath of humanity out, just as it is the people who are living in the houses two feet away from them. So for, for people to make these fast, quick judgments and to just separate, you know, it's that whole thing of them and us. It's the thing that Mm -hmm. plagues Washington, D.C. right now. It's the thing that has plagued the LGBTQ community against the straight community, for lack of, you know, too many other flowery words and initials and et cetera. But it's the division. We always want to divide and and look at what's different about them and us and, and somehow we're better. You know, at the end of that sentence, we're the we're the victor. We're the normal. We're the uh, uh, intelligent. Whatever. That's just bullshit. Can I say that? Right. Right. Um, Yes, you can. It's just not true. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's just not true. And if we, as LGBTQ people, I people, don't understand that, who does? But we don't. Right. (laughs) Well, that and that's, that's, you know, that's another question. That was another question I wanted to ask you from your vantage point. And like I said, I, I hold you in high regard because of your ever presence through a long history. Um, and what, what, um, having seeing where we are now. Uh, actually, I'm going to frame it this way. When I was very young, just coming out. Um, you know, early 80s, I was in a bookstore in West Hollywood and somebody stopped in the bookstore and asked the guy there, they were truly curious as to what the gay community was all about. And he was like, what, what, what does, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? What is, what is the goal here? And the guy behind the counter said, you know, we're really trying to eventually disappear into the rest of society. In other words, we're, we're normal and we're seen as this like outside group, but eventually we don't want to be a big deal. We don't want to be that. We want to be where it is just, you know, a, a factor of who anybody is. And um, I always remember that explanation being given out um, to this, this person. And now in today's age, I'm seeing more and more of that being what is happening and, um, you know, attitudes of young people who are born after the millennium and all of that. Um, What is your perspective of that? Where have we been? Where are we now? And what would you say to somebody young who is young LGBTQ that didn't go through the history that we have? Well, this is a big. Can you have me on next week? I'm kidding. I'm joking. But uh, <laughs> this is a big subject because I don't 
I don't want to blend into uh, a world that I've been rejected by so for so many decades. I don't want to lose my sense of identity, which I feel is um, is is different. I'm not a straight white man. <laughs> Uh, I'm not this, I'm not that, I could make a list. So I don't, I understand that I also want to be part of the fabric of the world and the fabric of my neighborhood and the fabric of my grocery store in that I don't want to like cause an eruption every time I walk in. However, I also don't want to lose what's completely special about me. Now, that may be generational. I don't know what to do with that, except that I do see a lot of flattening out and a lot of what I would say just in very simple terms, loss of personality. I mean, just a a lack of personality or some kind of holding back or or, um, distortion to uh, potentially appropriate. And, you know, that's the big word, I guess. I don't know. Maybe all these words have no meaning after a while. But I I caution those who want normalcy in that why would you want to be normal? I mean, what's normal? Are the guys running Washington uh, normal? I mean, you know, who, who, who defines what normal is? It's like, come on. So... To, to lose your edge, for us, to lose our edge, I think would not be good. And, of course, a lot of things contributed to that, including HIV AIDS and the, the um, absolute pulling the plug on sexuality or distorting. It didn't pull the plug on sexuality. It, it right. caused some distortion of sexuality, I think, maybe. Right. And um, you know what I'm saying? And so... I, I think we are special in some ways, and I don't mean that in any kind of a legatarian way. But I think that they're, they're, you know, look at all the writers and the composers and the artists and the, you know, I mean, we were responding to our pain. Is that not going to happen now? Is there no pain? Is there no suffering? Is there no um, uh, all the things that caused all that great arts and stuff. I don't know. It's like I said, we could have another show <laughs> discussing yeah, no, it because it's well, complicated. And just for the record, you are welcome back here anytime you want. Oh, so, thank you. <laughs> that, well, that, that is, I'm going to put that one out there right away. But um, no, and I, I hear you. And, and also what, what is your perspective on a lot of, people are looking backwards now, especially younger people where, you know, people who are advocates, um, um, allies for LGBTQ people who 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the things they said in today's purview sound pretty homophobic, uh, even though they were saying them in support of us at the time. Um, what, what would you say about that kind of perspective? Give me an example. Um, like the, the show Friends, for example. Uh, you know, at the time when it came out, I saw it as probably one of the most gay-affirming shows on the network, 
But mm-hmm. looking back, a lot of it hasn't aged well because it, it, um, there's so much paranoia from the straight guys on it to never appear gay. You know, um, right, 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 right. Yeah. Well, I think that there's that expression you're doing, they're doing the best they can. I don't think that that show specifically, and believe me, I'm no expert on television, but I think that they were well-intentioned, and I do not sense any underlying homophobia really going on. I think that was just indicative of the times and what the television audience wanted, frankly, which is, that's another story. But I don't think that they had any mean-spirited intention. So I think it goes to intention. It's like me playing some of those characters I played in the 70s. I wouldn't necessarily play those characters today. But right. you know, the, you know, the whole complexion of, of gayness has changed so drastically. And even in the time from Friends airing and a show airing today, they wouldn't. I think they'd have a hard time doing that. They probably do do it in certain subtler ways of having the straight guys be afraid of being perceived as gay. That probably does exist, but not at that level, that network level and that big, you know, that wouldn't happen, right. I don't think, today. So we evolve. We evolve. We change. We grow. And I think people need to be given a little bit more latitude in terms of having made mistakes. I made mistakes. I mean, come on. We all did. And and when you look at it in context and in perspective, they weren't so much mistakes as they just were, we were victims of our time. And, and with that, I have to, I have to cut us off because we are literally out of our time right now. And Michael, thank you. Thank you for being you. Thank you for everything you've done. Um, you're well, awesome. Um, and, thank you. and that's coming from, from deep in my heart, you've, you've inspired me for years and years and years, and, and I really want to thank you for that. Plus, coming on thank the show today so much. is awesome. You know, really and for our listeners, um, the, the production is called The Ache for Home. It is on YouTube this Sunday, 5 p.m. Pacific time. Check it out. Um, it is on the Queer Wise channel. Um, absolutely, I'm going to watch it. You should watch it. Everybody should watch it. Michael, like I said, anytime you want to come back, uh, we love you and, and would, would welcome your presence here. Um, thank you. You're, so, you're so completely much. awesome. And I want to thank Brody thank for his work on the, uh, the L.A. Blade and his Bruckton production um, I role love on the this Blade. show. <laughs> Good. Yeah, excellent. And watch for an article on uh, the Ache for Home coming out in the Blade soon as well. Um, for those of us that rated LGBT Radio, we will be back again next week. Fantastic show for you. Don't know what it will be, but it will be fantastic. Um, and we will be talking to you then. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. Radio.